If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome to the Calling History Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Tico Brahe. He'll be answering our call on October 7th, 1598, at the age of 52. Tycho was an astronomer, an astrologer, an alchemist, and because of his genius and lifestyle, he was a rock star of the 1500s. After being born into nobility with 10 siblings, for some reason, his uncle Jorgen just took Tycho from his parents at two years old and then raised him. When Uncle Jorgen died, saving the life of King Frederick II, Tycho was given the private island of Wien and an income for life. Instead of squandering his advantages, he built a party palace slash observatory called Uraniborg. He threw wild parties and invited the brilliant minds of his time to drink and study the stars with him. They built scientific machines that somehow made accurate measurements and predictions of what was happening in the heavens above. But the thing that most people know about Tycho Brahe is that he wore a golden nose in place of his missing nose that was cut off over a dispute over mathematics of all things. His life is fascinating and his work was somehow correct, at least most of it was, which is amazing considering that all of the calculations of the planets and the stars were done before the telescope was invented. It was all done with his eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers, and pet moose owners everywhere, I give you Tico Brahe. Hello, is that you, Mr. Brahe? Yeah, yeah, hello. It's uh, good to speak with you. Sir, I am so excited to speak with you. My name is Tony Dean. I'm talking to you from the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were standing next to each other and just counting stars in the sky. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today, but before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions you may have first? It's quite a, a fantastic. I had to spend a great deal of money to build a printing press for spreading information around the world, and now it has seemed to have become quite easy in your time. So this is very exciting for me to share my words and thoughts with people from all over the globe. Well, your life is interesting, to say the least. The parties that you've thrown throughout your life, and we'll certainly get into a pet that you've had, and all of these curiosities in your life. I mean, people want to know, and not enough people do know outside of the, the scientific community, because, my gosh, you're, it's just incredible. You're, but you're right. You would love the way that the world communicates now, because you'd be able to get all your information out in a second instead of going through the printing press and all of that work that you did. But oh, what wonderful times indeed. Yes, you would love it, believe me. There's several things that I would like to ask you about science in general and astronomy and uh, the work that you did in the sky. But, sir, i got to be honest with you. There are several things that people are going to want to know first. It's almost like they can't get anything else interesting about you out of their head until they get a few things clear. So you know that we have to talk about the golden nose first. I mean, there's not a lot of people in the world that have a gold nose. 
Could you please tell me a little about that? Is in fact gold? I've heard it's silver. I mean, and why do you have a metal nose? Well, uh, if I had a Danish krona for every time this question has been asked to me, I would be even more rich of a, of a person. But I will certainly share the story with you. This is something that perhaps can be chalked up to useful indiscretions. When I was at a university in Rostock in the German territories, I was there studying, and there was happens to be a, a party for an engagement for marriage, yeah? and there was um, much drinking to be had, and much wine was flowing, and there were some arguments between young men who were trying to show their what is the word bravado, and there I was challenged by uh, someone, another Danish nobleman who was actually a third cousin, whose name was Mandorp Parsberg. And after a little too much to drink, we were sort of chiding each other on who was uh, the better mathematician and astronomer. And uh, at one particular point, he brought up a sore subject that, uh, as is the case with, with astronomers, we are uh, asked by kings and royalty and the like to uh, cast horoscopes. Uh, it is so much for their vanity, I presume, but I had uh, cast a horoscope for a nobleman, and in it I mentioned that the emperor of the Ottoman Empire, Suleiman the Magnificent, would, would soon meet his end, thus relieving the stress of the Holy Roman Empire from Ottoman tax. And my cousin, Bosberg, said that, well, Tico, you have to realize that Suleiman is already dead, so your horoscopes are not particularly good. <laughs> and with this, I, we took uh, some words of anger, ex exchanged, and uh, before too long, we were, uh, instead of arguing this with words, like our sensible people, we were arguing it with our swords. And uh, I must say that uh, I do insist that I am the better mathematician than uh, than Passberg, but uh, he was a better swordsman. And uh, in the dark alley outside of Manor House, I was struck in the head with a sword blow that scarred my forehead and uh, and sliced, which is uh, the top of your nose called uh, the bridge of your nose, and a large slice was taken out of my nose. And uh, luckily, I had enough money to have good medical care. And I had this disfigurement that would be with me for the rest of my life, but I decided to, how should we say, accept and lean into the, into the notion of this deformity as a constant reminder for me for the rest of my life that I should settle arguments with my brain and not with my sword. So I got a, uh, a craftsman to form me a golden prosthesis that I would wear on my nose. And I also had one made of um, bronze and sort of for everyday use. But if there was a day when I was going to a party or some royal affair, I would wear my gold nose, showing that I was proud of my <clears throat> development as a person, that I had my fitful younger days were behind me. And henceforth, my brain would be the, what I would use to battle questions of the heavens and henceforth and not take up arms. So yes, I do have this gold nose. I am wearing it now. And I carry a little container with some, um, what is the word, sticky glue to, to hold it in place. And I have embraced my special visage and it is a part of my life. So you have, I mean, this is incredible, and good for you for embracing this. So <laughs> you have your party nose, and you have your everyday, I'm working out in the garden nose, and then <laughs> you have different noses for different occasions? 
Well, yeah, yes, it is. I remember there was a joke people used to say that it's something like, my dog has no nose. And someone would say, well, how does he smell? And the answer is awful. But and it always makes me laugh. But, but yes, if you're wearing a... If I could afford to wear the gold nose all the time. But again, it was, it was something that I wanted to call attention to. So on special occasions, I wanted to call special attention to my nose again to show that I have overcome this potential obstacle in my life and something that could have easily turned into an opportunity to ridicule me. I would embrace this so as to move on with the more important things of my life. Yeah, there and there are so many important things that you have done. And you have got to forgive me for asking these ridiculous questions to start <laughs> with before we get into the important stuff. But you had mentioned we're only 10 minutes into this conversation, and already you've mentioned drinking five or six times. I understand you like to do a little drinking at some of these parties. Is that correct? Oh, I am a Dane. This is the pastime of all all the ancestors, descendants, I should say, from the Viking years. We are hard drinking, but also we are uh, thoughtful people at the same time. So it would not be a party. Uh, one of the most intimate things that one can do with a friend when you are sitting and discussing whether it is astronomy or politics of the day or horse racing even, that... Uh, after your conversation, you raise your glass of, of beer, all as it is said in Danish, and when you have a salute, a toast with your partner, uh, it is supposed to be a very intimate, and you're supposed to stare at the other person's eyes, and you have a slow drink, and you know that you have bonded with that person as best as you can, and they have your full attention and affections. So it is, it is part of our culture to imbibe on these occasions, and you know, there are nights when there are clouds in the sky. So what better to do than go back inside, and when you can do astronomy, and have a, a lovely tankard of beer with your friends. These are the special moments that make life livable, yes? You know, this is, this is an interesting way to live, because you've just drawn me a very clear picture. When you wake up in the morning, and the sun is out, and it's shining, and then you're waiting to see what the night is going to look like. And, of course, if the night is clear and there are stars everywhere, well, that means you're going to have a wonderful evening looking at stars. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if the sky is filled with clouds, you're probably just as happy because that means everybody's coming over to drink beer and stare into each other's eyes and have a great night drinking. Absolutely. And at my home, there was where I lived with my family. I, was, I also lived with dozens of students at the time. And... Any teacher knows that it is uh, exciting and vibrant to work with your students. So we made the best of our, our time, even when we weren't uh, turning our noses toward the stars. We could uh, turn our noses to the bottom of a, a flask of ale and have just as good a time. And I also uh, pursued in the basement of my home, I was, had many um, chemical experiments, alchemical experiments, which was another fascination of the time. So there would be, we would go work with the furnaces and, and try to assay different types of materials at the time. And so it, there was always something to think about when you're wondering about the wonders of nature. It is certainly a book with more than one chapter. So let me ask you about your third cousin. So mm -hmm. you get into this sword fight with your third cousin. And at the time, how old are you? Are you a teenager at that time? 20 years old. 20 so yeah, very and he was as well. It seems surprising to me a couple things. The first one, that two teenage boys are fighting with swords, where they're actually, not teenage boys, but 20-year-old young men 
that are related. Were you fighting to kill each other? It was, you have to understand that swordsmanship was something that was taken up by, by young men of noble upbringing. It's one of the things you had to learn in case you had to be called to be a man of arms or some, so such. But I think in, in the sporting, perhaps in English, you call this uh, licensing. And it is not always intended to, to hurt the person you are, you are competing with. So it was basically one of those arguments where there was never any intention to harm each other, but with the introduction of alcohol, perhaps one's aim is a little bit off. I eventually forgave Mandrop for his blow, and soon after, we, we treated each other as kin for the rest of our lives. And there was no hard feelings, and we both realized that this is a mistake one makes when you're young. And you could perhaps make the argument that giving young people swords is perhaps something that society should change its mind against. (laughs) That's probably good advice. If you've got something sharp where you can hurt somebody even on accident, you might want to... I mean, unless you're going to war. I mean, that's one thing. But if you're just playing around, you're right. Somebody could accidentally get hurt. And a little bit, a bit of too much vanity of the nobleman with his flashing his dagger. Perhaps we should have settled it like, like more common men and just rolled up our fists and rolled up our sleeves and settled it that way. And I would, But then again, I would probably not be, have this feature of my face that has made me famous throughout history. <laughs> it's true. It, even in my day, I mean, 500, 600 years later, whatever it is. You know, this actually, I'm so glad that I asked that question because it makes a lot of sense right now. Because obviously when it was happening to you, it would be clear. You guys were just, like you said, it was just a, an argument that nobody was really meaning to hurt one another. But from our perspective, so many years later, it just seems absurd because this argument was over mathematics. And so what we think is, wow, okay, these guys are arguing about numbers and math, and then they pull out swords and their cousins, and then one guy cuts the other guy's face off. That's crazy. But for you, what you're saying is, yes, you did have this argument about mathematics. Yes, there was some alcohol involved, but this was really different because of the time, no different than if you had a fist fight. Or This is just a bravado of young men. Is that right? Yes, and, and perhaps it is reflection on the notion that this is how strongly I felt about my field of study, that yeah. it was something that I had chosen, that it was a field that was not chosen for me. I, I remember most, most noblemen were perhaps would study law or some sort of legal upbringing, and I chose to study astronomy as my course, and this gave some consternation to, to the people around me, saying that this is a curious field for you to go into. You are a nobleman. You can have any sort of life you want. You can pursue ladies and horses and battles and the like. And I decided to turn my attention to the heavens. And I, I guess perhaps at the time I was defending it probably in the back of my mind, defending my choice of my career. And, and that was perhaps the reason why I let my sword get a little bit of my brain back. When you were at all of these gatherings as you were becoming famous and you're living on this island and everybody loves you, are people always wanting to touch the nose? But there is a certain uh, level of propriety in Danish life. It is said that sometimes that you, you don't often, even to your own wife, say, I, I love you in public because these are things that you so, sort of keep to yourself and perhaps you do this on your deathbed. But <laughs> it is the Danes, although they are warm people, they are not particularly overly affectionate to the point where anyone would transgress as to, to reach across and touch someone's face. 
Remember that they could also end up on the end of a point of a of a sword as well. So, so no, there so was much, a, there was no, none of that ha- happening. No. <laughs> okay. All right. So you had mentioned uh, horoscopes when we first started talking. You had said yeah. that you had made a prediction that the Sultan would meet his end, and but he was already gone. What role do horoscopes play in your time? Well, it is an interesting case, and it is one that has, has much given me a mental consternation because I firmly believe that there is a sort of a unity of the universe, that the things that happen on the earth and from all of the different fields, even from nature and from alchemy and into the stars, probably somehow connect in the creator's grand scheme of things. So we have... For millennium, since the time before it was the history was recorded, we know that people use the heavens to keep track of time. And time is the measure for our lives. It is when we are born, when we are married, when we have children. We keep track of these things. And when people know that you are, let's say you have a star sign of Sagittarius, the importance of that was that tells you when you were born, what time of the year you were born in the winter. And... It was uh, understandable to think that somehow the events in the heavens are connected in this more grand scheme, although I have to admit that I have found issues where it, it is very hard to discern these things. For instance, I have a, a, a friend who's, who does not believe in astrological prognostications, and he always points out to me that when I was born in 1546, I had a twin brother, and he died at birth. And if the date of your birth determines your future, your your fate, I should have died as well. If you're two twins, you're born at the same time. So there was always an issue that perhaps astrology was at least imperfectly understood so that we would never particularly see. So I have to admit that even though I did cast horoscopes on many occasions, usually at the behest of a prince or a princess or, or some such important person, probably because of their own vanity. It was uh, something that was naturally done by astronomers at the time, even though I have to admit that it, there are flaws and holes in the argument, and it is a, an ongoing question that I do not know if I fully have the answer, but you have to understand that my associate Kepler has also cast horoscopes in his free time. I'm sure that there are some charlatans who can conduct horoscopes and astrological assessments to just simply to make money, but it was basically part of the profession, but one that I have to admit that the older I became, the less uh, substantive that this became as a science. I turned my attention more to the precision of measuring the locations of things in the heavens, and I thought that perhaps the secrets of the heavens that would connect us to, to the universe would be found more along those lines, something that was, with this word, um, empirical, measurable, as opposed to something that is a, a sort of a guess. When you say cast a horoscope, that is when you're basically telling somebody you're a Sagittarius and today is this date and so this is what you can expect this year or week or this month. And these are guesses, maybe even mystical guesses on your behalf that people would sometimes rely on you for. Is that correct? Well, you have to understand that the, that the tables of where the stars are and the planets that had been established long ago in the time of a Greek astronomer named Claudius Ptolemy, 
who wrote the books of astronomy that are still used in my day around the year 100. And these tables have been interpreted and reinterpreted many times over. And in all honesty, even from the perspective that I was just speaking of, the more exact astronomical analysis of things, I was driven into this study because these ancient star charts were very imperfect. There, was, there were flaws in them, in the measurements. So it was part of my reasoning for studying astronomy was that you know, perhaps these time-honored charts and books on how to ascertain people's horoscopes and, and, and things, maybe they were just incorrect over time. And, and perhaps that lends to the reason that astrology is such an imperfect science, whereas astronomy is much more perfect science. Now, when you are talking about these astronomy books that you have that are written long ago, and you're saying that the star charts are imperfect, and, it, and the measurements, you found that there were corrections needed on these measurements. I want to be absolutely clear on what the date is, because it is really surprising me that the thought of measuring stars in your time is even possible. What is the date in your, what's today's date in your time? This is the 7th of October. In 1598. Okay, we're talking late 1500s, and you're talking about measuring the stars properly. Now, in our time, there is a device, and I don't think this has been invented in your time, but there is a device, I'm not going to give you all the details because I don't want to change the past, but <laughs> there's a device where you can look through it up into the skies, and you could see maybe a hundred thousand or maybe a million times further than what you can see with your eyes and you can see it crystal clear like you're there. Oh, you, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, if, <laughs> if you hang around long enough, who knows, maybe you'll invent this device, but there is no such device like that. You're just looking at the stars with your eyes. Is that correct? Yes, I mean, there are, in the world of in sciences, you can use lenses to, to magnify like the writing on a paper but the only thing that I used for my observations was my naked eyes. And I spent much of my endowment as a, as a nobleman. I was given a salary from the king that whereas many people would spend their money on, <clears throat> as we say, luxuries of life, I spent all of mine on very grand instruments. And perhaps you remember from your... <clears throat> If you studied mathematics in, in, in your school days, you took perhaps a geometry, and there was a device that you would use to measure angles on the paper called a protractor, yes? Yes. Well, my devices were essentially very large, very precise protractors for the sky. So whereas at the time of Ptolemy, he could measure something in the heavens within, let's say, three to five degrees. And for this, if, if this is unfamiliar with you with, with astronomy, if you imagine if you look from the north into the, in, at the horizon and a line that goes directly over your head to the south, this is called a meridian, and that is 180 degrees. So if you divide that in your head to three or five degrees, it is a, it's a, a small amount, but it's uh, reasonably well. So even the, the Greeks had had data that was reasonably well done. It was, I'm sure you heard of the great astronomer Copernicus. He improved on some of these notions of being able to make measures more accurate. And with my instruments on Wien, where my observatory was, 
these, I could use them to find an accuracy level, let's see, to within, what is the word, uh, one arc minute, which is one sixtieth of a degree. And this would be equivalent if you had a friend and, and they stood in a field 100 yards away and they held up one finger and you looked at it, that is the level of how much I could discern with my instruments. So it was a great increase in accuracy of these measurements. And, and I, again, this was done simply with the power of my own eyes and the instruments that I had established. And even then, I had to realize that there were certain days, and I'm sure you know in Denmark, this is not always the best weather. And there would be days where there are clouds and the like. But I even noticed that the effects of the atmosphere you know, when you look at the sun, when it is high in the sky, it's usually bright and white color. But as it is closer to the horizon, it seems to have colors changed, more like it is red or orange. Mm -hmm. These are from effects of the atmosphere. So I even had to compensate my observations for if there were stars that were low on the horizon, I had to realize that those measurements might be slightly subject to error because of the deviations caused by the, the atmosphere. So until this time, this was something that was ignored by most astronomers. And most people, when they read the books of Ptolemy and the like, they were more than happy to sweep these errors under the carpeting. But the better my instruments became, the more I could not do this. I had to, if you are able to do something precise, do something precise. It is a, if you want your job to be done well, do it as best you can. And these were the errors that I found and I dedicated my career and my fortune to, to creating instruments that would measure with this level of precision. That is fantastic. I, I didn't think when we were having this conversation that there was any chance that I was going to have any clue what you were talking about. And then when you talked about these instruments, and obviously you've made very precise instruments, but you also made this sound very simple when you were measuring degrees. And when you were talking about a protractor, I can't get this picture out of my head. It's so simple. A protractor just looks like, like a half circle. And you would set that on the horizon, and then you would use that to measure where the stars were. It was really that simple, right? Basically, and then I would have ones that you could imagine a protractor that could, it was an ingenious design, I must say. It was fixing something on a ball. Like, you know, had in, in the human body, the, the hip bone is like a ball. It is affixed into the pelvis, yes? Yes. And how they can, what is the word, twist in all directions, like uh, swiveling. I made a protractor that could affix on a large ball and swivel. And this, mind you, is the size of um, four, four to six feet, three or four feet off the ground, that it could swivel in any direction. So not only could I measure how high something was from the horizon, I could, for instance, measure how far away Venus was from the moon at a particular time period. And then I would make the comparison looking in these charts that were called uh, ephemerae that were established first by Ptolemy and then uh, essentially corrected here and there over time, but not to any great extent. And I would look to see if my measurement for that particular date, let's say October 7th, was the same as it was predicted by the ancient Greeks. And you would see that there would be a difference. And that was the essence of my work, was to correct these errors and make the most accurate ephemerae, uh, the charts of the stars and the planets that were possible at the time. 
So every time a new idea came to me for a, a different version, perhaps a, instead of a half-circle-shaped protractor, I would just use a sextant for a slice, one-sixth of the circle, for a more precise so I could aim it more closely. I also had very large globes, of not of the Earth, but of the stars. And as I would make an observation, I would mark where the constellations' shapes truly were, and I would have the most precise map of the heavens ever created by astronomers. I see. So the purpose of these new devices that you were creating is to take the original measurement of the protractor, which is maybe a, you can get within a degree or two degrees, and then take mm -hmm. the next device to break that degree up into a hundred different measurements. You just keep, it keeps refining the precision. Is that what the new instruments do? Absolutely. And if you think about this, like you think of, perhaps you know that there are on uh, chronometers, uh, uh, clocks, there are tw 12 hours, and this corresponds to an ancient uh, habit of relating mathematics to the heavens, the 12, 12 signs of the zodiac and the 12 hours, there's a connection there. And you know that the, the, there are minutes and then there are seconds, and it is 60 within 60, and it keeps going smaller as you go. This is exactly the same principle, mathematical principle, that is behind the angular measure of what's happening in the sky. So we use that, that, that same reference, and it, it's interesting that that came to me because I, I remember saying earlier on that astronomy was the, the first form of timekeeping, and our timekeeping devices that we have echo this understanding. And basically, yes, I had a fine craftsman, a, a large pocketbook, thanks to my payment from the Danish crown, that I could have the very best instruments made that would have such finely delineated measuring scales to achieve this very, very high level of accuracy. This is probably why you're so well studied and why people still are curious about your life, because here you have this extraordinary mind that does these unimaginable computations and then yet at night you like to drink and i heard you even had a pet moose is that did you have a pet moose <laughs> yes yes his name was rick and i he was a nice companion you know we live in scandinavia so there are these these large beasts roaming around so which we are fond of you know the reindeer and the like so at a particular point, I was given this beast who was, who was, I believe, was orphaned by a hunter, something of the like. And I had kept him and, uh, as a companion and to entertain my children and the likes. And unfortunately, you, you, you've spoken of the Danish penchant for drinking beer. That is how the elk met his demise. Unfortunately, he, was, he would drink a bucket of beer at a time, and he became <laughs> rather, um, what, what is it? Like, like a feather in his mind, as what we say in Danish, tipsy, perhaps, and you say in English, and sadly stumbled down some steps and, and met his demise. So I, it would not be the first person in Denmark to have drunk too much and had a mishap because of this. Well, was he a moose or an elk? It is an elk, but uh, moose are much larger. So it was, yeah, more like if you have in the minds of, of what you think of, like a uh, reindeer, so from the north. The moose, like you have on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean in the, the English holdings in the, in the north, where the Eskimos are, where the Vikings originally visited. That's a different beast altogether, which it would be very hard to keep something with that big of horns in, in your house. <laughs> and what did you say his name was? 
Rix, R-I-X. Oh, okay. And so did he come in the house? Well, he had free reign to walk around the area, yes, and he stumbled on some steps in the hall. He was indoors at the time, and normally these creatures do not encounter, have to walk up and down stairs. So right. he was uh, skilled until he wasn't. That is incredible. Oh, my gosh. Well, I'm, so, I'm sorry that Rick's didn't make it. Uh, he had a much happier life than a meeting at the end of an arrow from, from a hunter. So we can look at it from the glass of beer is half full, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. That's perfect. So, okay, so let me go back here. All right. You have said astronomy several times, and you've said astrology several times. What is the difference between the two? Astrology is the notion that the events that happen in, in, in the skies are innately connected to the trajectory of your life, that perhaps there is something happening in the sky that allows you to make a decision that they, oh, this does not bode well for my endeavors. There have been kings throughout history who have had their stargazers tell them that, like, oh, your highness, it is a bad time for war, or it is a good time for battle. Uh, more often than not, the decisions of the astrologers had no effect on the way history uh, dictated itself. But this notion that we are innately connected, and I have mentioned that I do believe that there is some sort of grand connection designed by the creator of the universe that somehow connects us all together. And astrology is the attempt to sort of connect these two and find a more discrete connection, even though it seems to be very elusive. Whereas astronomy is the actual analysis of the motion and the locations of things in the heavens and chronicling them and putting them on the map so that you can know where they are. There are a great number of practical benefits to this, whereby the, you can find your way home if you know where the North Star is, yes? So there are also practical applications from timekeeping and seafaring and the like that make astronomy have a more discreet and beneficial result that, uh, that you can see happening that is much less uh, capricious than things that are happening in the heavens. And that is the difference and the, part of the reason why the predictive aspect of astrology was one that it, it led me to realize, I remember when I was first infatuated by uh, astronomy, that they had been able to predict eclipses since the time of the ancient Greeks stories where people would predict when an eclipse would come and use it to their advantage by saying that they have control over the heavens and stuff like this. But the calculations were close for the predictions of the day, but somewhat wrong. I remember the eclipse that inspired me was a day off from what it was expected to be. And I thought, well, this is, there is room for study. If there is, like I said, the, there is, if the, the solution is not quite right. Some people see these errors or mistakes as something you should hide in science. And I, as I see them as a, a fertile field to investigate and to find out where that would lead you. And although astrology does have many flaws in its ability to predict something very accurately, astronomy, the details, the mathematics of this make it much more dependable. And it seemed to be, from the practical aspects of my mind, one that I would pay most of my attention to, because I would think this would bring us the most benefits more directly. So if we were to think of astronomy, 
Astronomy is the hard data. The stars are here. This is how everything is moving. These are the measurements. That is the hard data. And astrology is the prediction of what that connection between the heavens or the stars and nature and that connection you're talking about. Astrology is the prediction of what that might mean to a person's life, which it seems to me is going to bring a lot of charlatans into that field. That a lot of people would use that for probably more bad than good. Indeed. I am recalled that this notion of how one can impart a sort of meaning where there is no meaning. I remember that when I worked with Johannes Kepler, who was a very accomplished mathematician and firm believer in astrology, his father died at an early age. And Kepler was convinced because he was born at the time when the planet Mars was in ascendancy. And in, in that time of the horoscope, when his father was born, and that he would die in war because Mars is the god of war. Part of me realizes that perhaps there is something to this, but there is also perhaps something to regard that there are two warring princes who live in near Kepler's home territory that just had disdain for each other. And the reasons that his father was killed or died at an early age this way is because of uh, events that are more tethered to the real world as opposed to what's happening in the heavens. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you had made an astrological prediction that Ivan the Terrible would die, and you were fairly accurate on that. Is that correct? Well, it, uh, are we speaking of Suleiman the Magnificent or Ivan the Terrible? Ivan the Terrible. Oh, yes, a different story, yes. If you're in Scandinavia, you hear things. It's sort of, if I was put to the test, that if let's say you had a very old man living across the street from you who has a very un- unhealthy life, I smoke too much tobacco in his pipe and drinks too much, and if you were to make a prediction, you could say, well, the stars tell me that Hans probably does not have much longer to live on this world. There are other answers to the questions other than the fact of if there's a conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn, right? I see what you're saying. You can use a bit of a worldly understanding of your environment and political and personal and all these such. They are also contributors, perhaps even more so than what is happening in the skies. So one could make a prediction pretty well from a number of sources, not just necessarily the location of the planet Venus, let's say. I see. So although a lot of people may be using the stars and what's happening in the sky to make these predictions, there's also a very logical approach to this that if a man is juggling swords, you could probably predict that he might cut his finger at some point. (laughs) Precisely. That is a very good way of putting it. And I have to say there is, at this time in Europe, there is a spirit that has been I consider has arisen through the likes of Nicholas Copernicus. There was a time when whatever was an authority must be respected. And this is the reason why some great thinkers' theories last beyond their, their expectancy as they, they should last. And there is now a time, with, especially with the use of, of the sciences, that authority now is yielding to truth. And if we discover something that is new and interesting, that just because it is new and interesting, it is not something to be shunned or afraid of, then this is, there is a certain spirit at the time, and it, it is being led by, by mathematicians and the, the men who study the physical motions of things 
that we seem to have unlocked a methodology to make things more understandable in an empirical sense. So perhaps this is a, a rise in the age of science, perhaps. And it is my hope that the things that I have studied for the course of my lifetime have opened so many more doors to, through which to explore that these are exciting times. And it is part of the reason why I've taken educating students so seriously too, because at some particular point in time, I will be gone and the torch must be carried on by the next generation of scientists. And this trend of is revolutionary, to use a word that, that Mr. Copernicus has put into the common vernacular, that I believe that we are at the cusp of exciting times. There was a whole scientific revolution that came after you, and your goal to pass this information along has been a fantastic success, and so much of your work is still accurate to this day. But what is amazing is that when your time does expire, there is a dispute. It's not a violent dispute. Nobody cuts anybody's noses off or anything. But there's a dispute as to who would get your notes because so many people wanted to carry on your work because it was so good and so accurate. I mean, you're clearly a perfectionist. Let me ask you about how all this began because you didn't start your life as, I mean, you weren't shoeing horses or it didn't seem like you were intending on getting in the army and you were going to go overseas and fight some war. I mean, there, there's, how did all this to start? What was that moment where you're looking in the sky and you say, okay, that's it. I need to be an astronomer. Yeah, I, I alluded to this at one particular point, and you have to understand that my father and my uncle who raised me were both men-at-arms for King Frederick II. So it was to be expected that you would also be someone who if the, the king calls upon you to go to war with some other nation, that you would be asked to do this. But I was lucky. Some people are given great gifts and they squander them. And the great gift that I had of, of having a noble birth allowed me to pursue different directions. And it was to this I was very lucky. I remember I was, I was sent to, to schooling. And uh, again, I was studying the things, of course, you study Latin and you like and rhetoric and legal aspects of Danish law and, and the like. And I was just staring up at the sky, being enchanted by the stars, as people have throughout history. The ancients put the stories in the sky of Cassiopeia, Andromeda, and the like. So there was always a fascination with this. But one particular evening, there was a, a lunar eclipse that I had mentioned. And it was just astounding to me that this could be predicted, albeit they predicted incorrect by a day. But an eclipse is something that uh, someone in, in, in your city would say, oh, there's going to be an eclipse tomorrow. And you would be like, well, this is fascinating. It sounds like a, the work of a conjurer or, or something along these lines. And the fact that it could be predicted even somewhat in, with a, a little bit of error in the prediction fascinated me. And I, it, perhaps it was this notion that the clockwork or the heavens could be understood so precisely just engaged my mind and led me into a new direction. And it was just understood that Tigabar would not be, although he was a member of noble Danish families going back to times of Vikings, perhaps, was going to explore different directions, just like the Vikings explored the oceans that to new lands. I would turn my explorations to the skies. 
you're an astronomical Viking. Is that what you're saying? Well, I, I, that, that is a very romantic way of putting it and has a nice, a nice sound to it in my ears. So I would accept this, this coronation you have given me. Okay. Do you see the heavens, the stars, the sky? Do you see it like a clock? Well, yeah, I think there's a fascination. There are so many things that, that perhaps humanity in its youthful stages, even though we have a long history, that there are some things even like the workings of a body. I mean, since man was created, we know that a human body has its parts. But as time through the studies of Galen and Paracelsus and other doctors of physics realized that there are interchangeable parts and the way the blood works and the heart works makes for a functioning human body. This way of discerning the details, I think, is the reason why there is a brain inside of our skulls. And noticing the exquisite precision that can be seen from what is happening in the heavens, that you know, we, we can measure the length of a year. We, I can tell you exactly what, where the sun will be on a certain day at a certain time with a few calculations, that there is a certain power to this, that it feels as though you are understanding something that was deeply hidden, yet all in the vault of the skies above us. So who would not be interested in this ability to predict what is happening in the, in the heavens? Well, that's what makes your life so interesting. The answer to that question is pretty much everybody else, because it's just too big of a problem to solve. When you say, who wouldn't be interested in this? I mean, think of how many people that operate at your level. It's a very small number. It's one one billionth of a percent or something like that. And that's what's so extraordinary, that you, you go this far to do these measurements and even figure this out. So, yeah, tell me this. How do you see the universe? What does the universe look like to you? What do you see in the sky? Is the world flat? Is it round? Is it square? Is What is the sun? How is the movement? And how do y your beliefs on this compare to what other people think? Ah, yeah, this is, what the, this is the purpose of my work, is to understand this grand connection between everything in our universe. And first, uh, luckily, even man who puts the shoes on the horse backwards, who may not be the most capital of thinkers, knows that the earth is round. So luckily, at least in Denmark, everybody understands this. We know this from the, we spoke of the eclipses, that you see the round shadow on the moon. So that is settled. But what is not settled is our location in the universe. The common understanding is, apart from the thoughts of a, a few sort of rebellious thinkers, is that the Earth is stationary in the center of the universe. And this has been understood since time immemorial, because if you were to ask yourself, oh, why not? Everything, if you look into the sky, things move around us. It looks like we are at the center of everything. If the Earth was moving, as is proposed by uh, the, the Polish cleric Copernicus, it is a curious theory and one that has very great many merits to it. But in his universe, the Earth is spinning, providing us day and night. And it is also revolving around the sun, which provides the course of a year. So this, this actually heliocentric, helio meaning a sun-centric system, is something that is being hotly debated now. I, for one, although I admire Copernicus greatly, I have sent emissaries to his, his, his home, and I was gifted from his family an instrument that I cherish in, in, as a museum piece in my home. 
but I, I believe that there are some flaws in Copernicus' system because although there is a, a certain charm to the notion of, and my associate Kepler believes this as well, that the sun is special and it's as though you are sitting around a campfire, everyone sort of huddles around the sun. So why not with the planets huddle around the sun in the same similar way? And I have to admit that there's a certain charm to it. And Copernicus's work is accurate in terms of its predictability of what's happening in, in, in the heavens. But I, for one, have just issue. Perhaps I am not as forward a thinker as I think I am at times. I, I am firmly grounded, literally, in this case, with the studies of Aristotle's physics that places the Earth at the center of things. One of the things that, that perturbed me most about Copernicus's system was that in his system, the stars would be very far away, much farther than ever expected because of an analysis called parallax, which you can ask me about later, which I use to determine the distance to the stars. And I thought that it would be a great waste of space from the creator to do this. So my system was essentially a compromise between the old Earth-centered way of thinking and Copernicus's new and some would say exciting sun-centered system. So the universe, as it would look to me if I were to fly up high above and look down on it from distances far away, I would see all of the planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, they would be encircling the sun, according to Copernicus. But then the sun would have an orbit around the Earth. And this was called the Tychonic Compromise. And for me, it's provided an ability to have something that had the predictive power that Copernicus had without causing all of the troubles of taking the Earth and moving it out into space and putting it into motion, which is certainly would affect many people in academia and in ecclesiastical circles who think that the Earth had a more prime place in, in God's creation. The universe, in my eyes, is a compromise between these two. And again, the two, do I know that this to be true, fully true? No, but it is the predictive power of the system where I can say that the planets will be in certain locations when I expect them to be, is gives me evidence that my system is cogent, it is sustainable over time, and perhaps time will tell if Herr Copernicus is correct or Herr Brahe is correct. So, so it is your belief that the planets, Mercury, Venus, and these planets that you've mentioned, Saturn, mm. that they are around the campfire of the sun, and mm. then the sun is revolving around the Earth. Am I getting that correctly? Absolutely, and the moon also will go around the Earth. So there is, it is essentially one, one body, the moon, that goes around the Earth simply, and then there is like essentially a carousel of planets that are all moving around the Earth. Now, some people say that this is an unnecessarily complicated cycle. It does not fit the ancient philosopher named uh, William of Arkham, who said uh, that the simplest explanation is usually the best explanation. And I know that has uh, invoked this because his system is much simpler to look at if you were to draw it on a piece of paper than mine. But again, I think that the intellectual life of a person is 
how your thoughts change over time. And perhaps I've just not lived yet long enough to divorce myself from the notion that we are sitting upon a giant orb that is moving 1,000 miles per hour on its axis and flying through space at some amazing speeds. That So perhaps I cannot suspend my or elevate my imagination as much as Herr Copernicus and Herr Kepler, also who believes in this thing, have done. How is it that you're standing on the earth right now, as I am, and you're, you're looking at the, it's this incredible size of this giant rock or whatever the earth is, and it is moving through space at thousands of miles an hour, as you've said, and everything is spinning. What does that look like? What propels the earth through space? What propels the planets around the sun? I mean, how are these giant balls moving in space? What's causing that? Well, it is the eternal question. Perhaps the reason why astronomers turn their noses up to the heavens is to try to reason what this is. I, I know that in the Catholic world, I, uh, Danish is a Protestant country, but uh, some of the Catholic scholars have actually produced in their charts of the heavens once they get to this area where they cannot explain what is really happening, the, the depictions of angels turning cranks to make everything move through the heavens. So <laughs> I think this is a little bit more fanciful, but I have to admit I do not have the answer to this. I have to say that my associate, Kepler, his, his notion that everything is moving around the sun, he has proposed to me something that I still think it is your conjecture at the time, that perhaps the sun has some sort of magnetic, you know, a lodestone, a piece of stone that could pick up metal, yes, has some sort of effect on the planets. As And the closer the planets are, they are held more tightly by this, this magnetism that might be compelling the planets to, to stay in the orbits around the sun. But as to what it is that uh, compels them to move, this is something that is, is still being ascertained. We do know that sometimes if you put something in, in motion, it can stay in motion. But at the same time, when was the last time you rolled a ball and it rolled forever? So the, these things are, are still unclear as to how it could be happening. But it is, it is clear that even the ancient Greeks had hoped that they would have this sort of a unified understanding of how everything worked. And for many years, what was thought in the past was held, it was, if you imagine, an artist's workspace, and he has a beautiful piece of marble, a large block, and he's too afraid to chip away at it, even though he wants to create a beautiful statue from this. There, for many years, there were times when Aristotle's theories were held in such esteem that no one could ever doubt them. And this was uh, one of the great events astronomically in my life was in 1572, there was a new star in the sky. It was, I have mentioned it was my habit of contemplating the stars as I, I walked outdoors at night. And there was a star of just unsurpassed in its brilliancy, much brighter, looked like a planet. When Tycho was young, his uncle pushed him to learn the law. But he wasn't interested in it, because everything he wanted to study was high in the sky and a million miles away. In the next episode, he'll talk about what happened when the gravy train ended and King Frederick II died, leaving his son Christian IV in charge. And it's not good, because he didn't like Tycho wasting the crown's money on stars and planets when Christian could put that money to much better use by invading Sweden or starting some other war. 
You're also going to hear about the private island of Veen and what Tico did once he was forced to leave it. If you're enjoying this podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, please do it now. We'll see you in the next episode of Calling History.